the Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Jason Castillo, Associate Professor at Texas A&M University. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, first, you have a rather startling opening line in your recent Chicago Tribune op-ed that the threat of nuclear war is keeping you up at night for the first time since you were a kid. Really? Well, uh, it's troublesome that we have a conflict with a, a great power, Russia, uh, that is increasingly uh, finding its back against the wall. You know, it started the war uh, as a high-stakes conflict. Uh, in many ways, I think the Russians see this as their Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, a lot of us expected them to do really well in the conflict, and instead, <laughs> they're losing territory. And uh, President Biden has been threading the needle between pushing Russia out and not forcing Russia to escalate. And under those conditions, it's, it starts to get worrisome, especially when you hear uh, Putin uh, brandish nuclear weapons, other Russian officials talk about nuclear use. And then you consider that uh, during the Cold War, our policy was to uh, threaten nuclear use when we were failing in a conventional war. So it looks like uh, the opposite problem we worried about in the Cold War. And it's probably still a low probability event, but given what stakes the U.S. has in this conflict, uh, uh, those are risks I don't want to run. And uh, as I say in the end of the op-ed, it's time to start talking. And lo and behold, not because of my op-ed, but <laughs> we're, it's been revealed that the Biden administration is in fact having back-channel discussions. And there is a history of the U.S. finally telling allies that it's time to stop the fighting. Uh, we did that in the Balkan Wars in the 90s and with the Israelis in 1973. So, yeah, it's keeping up up at night. You know, part of the problem is that I study nuclear weapons, so there's always the uh, you know annual nuclear war nightmare. But the war in in Russia is uh, added to those concerns. So one of the things you do in that piece is you lay out different possible paths to nuclear use in Ukraine. And the first one you outline is that Putin, in the face of some kind of battlefield losses, uh, especially in the eastern areas that he's annexed, could decide to use, quote, low-yield nuclear weapons to compel his opponents to back down. I want to see if we can get specific here. First, tell us what a low-yield nuclear weapon is. Give people some way to understand the relative scope of, of that. And then um, you say he would use them in an attempt to compel uh, Ukraine to back down. What does that mean exactly? How would Putin, if he's trying to map this out rationally in his mind, how would he see yeah. the utility of actually using low-yield nukes as connected to achieving some yeah. objective that he has? Well, let me say at the outset that uh, when NATO had these conversations during the Cold War, uh, as its concept of flexible response, its nuclear strategy, uh, everyone agreed in the alliance that the use of non-strategic nuclear weapons in Europe would uh, be a possibility that the Russians would have to think about should they invade West Germany. But the alliance never agreed what that would look like. Uh, the West Germans, their view was we should use uh, low-yield nuclear weapons, and I'll, I'll get to what that kind of looks like, but we'll use low-yield nuclear weapons early in a conflict. We'll do it over there, which means not in West Germany, 
and we'll do it to demonstrate our resolve to use more. And the American view is the opposite. <laughs> we'll use them late. We'll use them massively. We'll use them at the forward edge of the battle area, which is a polite way of saying West Germany. And I don't think the alliance ever really resolved those issues. And Putin would be thinking the same kind of, making the same kind of calculation. The use of, we call them non-strategic nuclear weapons because they're in Europe and they're of low, lower yield than weapons that would be delivered from the continent of the United States or from the Russian homeland. So Hiroshima and Nagasaki were around 10 to 15 kilotons. The Russians have a variety of yields available to them. Uh, I've even heard as low as one kiloton or even lower. So if you're Putin, I think you basically have three choices. You could brandish, perhaps uh, talk about nuclear weapons more, or put them on alert because we're watching. And we would convey that to the Ukrainians. And there's a tradition of other great powers making nuclear threats like that, like, like we did uh, during the Cold War. Uh, he could use a demonstration attack, which is to test a nuclear weapon somewhere, uh, let's say over the Black Sea. And he could more uh, severely attack Ukrainian conventional forces or bases with these low-yield weapons. And this is all an effort to compel, to coerce the Ukrainians to, to stop fighting. And it is, it is mirrors the logic of flexible response. And before the Russians invaded Ukraine, there was this debate among Russia experts about what is Russian nuclear doctrine. And I, and I think there is some consensus that Russia would use nuclear weapons if it felt like its existence or its homeland was threatened. Well, if you've just annexed parts of Eastern Ukraine and you've told all your leadership that this is a high stakes conflict, it's, I think it's in the realm of the imaginable that he would use nuclear weapons. Uh, again, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to be a, a, a threat monger. I think it's a low probability of bet, but it's one that you can't discount. And I think the Biden administration has had a healthy respect for this possibility because as you Remember, there have been a lot of former NATO SACIRs, former Dep Department of Defense officials, columnists in the Atlantic Monthly, who argue that NATO should impose a no-fly zone. And the Biden administration has resisted that. And I think because they understand those dynamics. So there's already an admission from the administration that this is a possibility. And I think the more the war continues, the higher their concerns grow about these possibilities. I want to see if I can just zoom in a little bit more on, on um, how the logic might look from Putin's perspective. He must be considering the consequences of using even low-yield nuclear weapons. Um, you know, he, that would be, a, it seems like that to me, that would be a major bet that he could compel a nation, essentially, uh, to stop fighting for its own sovereignty and survival. That's like one of the core things mm -hmm. in international politics. And he would also have to contend with other negative possible results and reactions from that use. And so if it's a credible threat that he would really tr try to use nukes, not just to combat 
a direct U.S. military intervention into the conflict, but to compel Ukraine to back down. Mm -hmm. I, I guess one of the questions is why 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 couldn't he achieve that conventionally? Why couldn't he uh, achieve compellence in that scenario with conventional weapons? What um, what utility is the low yield nuke to actually mm. push the Ukrainians over the edge? It's I would say it's a it's an option of last resort, uh, and I've uh, was at a recent conference and asked a handful of Russia experts, "Do you think Putin would use a nuclear weapon?" And they said, "Well, we all kind of have a checklist of things that he can do to escalate in this kind of." which has become a war of compellence, a war of punishment to break Ukraine and their will to fight. And each one of them said that, you know, in this checklist, there are lots of things he can do before nuclear weapons, but he's halfway through the checklist. So I don't, it's not at the forefront, although he does like to brandish and talk about nuclear weapons, but it's on the list. And that's part of the compellent threat is that he does these things you know, ripping down the civilian infrastructure, uh, making life hard for Ukraine in the coming cold winter. That's a that's coercion by punishment. But he's also telegraphed that at the end of this road, at the end of this escalation chain, there is the possibility of nuclear weapons. So it's a last resort kind of thing. And the scenario that would worries me is that he has said that he's annexed these parts of eastern Ukraine. If the Russian army starts to break and starts to run away, then if he thinks it's part of Russia, it's not guaranteed he'd use nuclear weapons, but he'd have to start reaching for other instruments, and instruments of coercion are starting to run out. I wonder what you think of the work of people like Todd Sexer and Matthew Furman, who suggest that there's little evidence that nuclear weapons are useful for coercion, that states that possess them don't appear any more able to compel others than states that don't possess them? Oh, I think in, in large part that they're, they're correct. Uh, but uh, there are cases where compellence work. Uh, Japan, 1945, okay, even if you don't count that case, um, there's a lot of compellence in the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think there's some evidence there was compellence in the uh, uh, Sino-Soviet Crisis and the late 1960s. But in the Cuban Missile case, um, I'm not one of these people who thinks that uh, Khrushchev was cowed by American nuclear superiority. I think both leaders worried about events spinning out of control. So in general, I think they're right that nuclear compellence doesn't work. But the one case where states might compel is if they think their survival is threatened. And in my view, the Russians think about Ukraine like the Cuban Missile Crisis. At least that's how their leadership talks about it. And so a defeat there could be uh, very devastating to Putin's future domestic political prospect. Can you describe what strategic stability is? So this is a uh, concept that has been around since the uh, middle of the Cold War. I think the if you're going to start reading about strategic stability, the uh, Schelling and Halperin book on arms control is a good place to start. Um, it means different things to different people. The way I think about it is if you're in a 
great power competition or what we used to call simply an arms race and you're worried about extending nuclear deterrence or just nuclear deterrence in general, you worry about two or three things up front. First, you want to make sure that your nuclear forces are not vulnerable to preemption or to a first strike in a war or in a crisis. Uh, second, you're worried about arms race stability, that is how sensitive are your forces to small changes in the adversary's forces. Uh, and let, let me highlight that there's no agreement on those two questions. Uh, people think those things matter greatly, but how you interpret them depends really on your different views of nuclear deterrence. Um, that's the core of strategic stability, crisis stability, arms race stability. Uh, so when the United States engages in track two dialogues with the Russians, there's a conversation about our missile defenses, our cruise missiles, our posture, and they take place along these two dimensions about crisis stability and arms race stability. But there are broader concerns. You might fold in, uh, for example, wartime stability. That is, if deterrence fails and a war happens, have you postured your forces? Have you adopted a strategy that make the costs of war too great? So in 1983, uh, the Catholic Church came out against countervalue targeting and argued that mutually assured destruction was an immoral thing. So those are those kinds of concerns. Uh, and I would add two others. Uh, I think political stability, and that is, how are you posturing your forces and your strategies? Are are they unnecessarily hostile? And I think it's interesting. There is a there is a difference between the Russians and the Chinese when they talk about strategic stability with us on this dimension. The Russians tend to focus uh, entirely on arms race stability and the problem of first strike stability, whereas the Chinese talk about more political dimensions of strategic stability and less about what the Russians are concerned, what concerns the Russians. So for example, you know, we always press the Chinese to be transparent about what they're doing. And we want, uh, we want almost guardrails to a competition. In fact, this morning on NPR, I listened to uh, a Biden administration official saying that uh, Biden is going to go talk to the Chinese leadership because they want to make sure that as we're competing, you know, it's a it's a stable competition. It's kind of odd from the Chinese perspective. They're not interested in being transparent. They're not interested in giving us guardrails because they're on the weaker side, uh, and they see value to ambiguity. And uh, from their perspective, they've asked us things like. It would be good if we admitted that we lived in nu nuclear mutual vulnerability with the Chinese. And American officials, for some reason, are reluctant to admit that reality without some kind of concession. So you see, you know, strategic stability is a big concept and it means different things to different people. The last thing I would add about strategic stability is that um, in deterrence relationships, it's, it's a dance of three. It's the U.S., it's our adversaries, and it's our allies. So the stability of the alliance also matters when you think about defense planning. It also has a, uh, it's also a part of strategic stability. And the more you do to uh, enhance uh, alliance stability, making your allies, convincing them that you're not going to abandon them or entrap them, uh, it probably comes at the expense of all other forms of strategic stability. So in, in the Cold War, 
we pursued strategies, nuclear strategies that were pretty aggressive, that involved damage limitation, that were preemptive. And those aren't good for uh, crisis stability and arms race stability, but they're a way to try to assure your allies you're going to protect them. So it's, I conceive of strategic stability across those five dimensions. And because I, I think it helps you understand what other, what, whether, what worries other countries and the different trade offs you face when you're uh, pursuing deterrence. And nothing is cost free. You have to balance costs and risks with what you're trying to achieve. I wonder if I, if I could ask you to sort of assess the United States' current posture with respect to nuclear weapons and its allies. Um, d d does this look stable to you? Does this look like strategic stability or is it waning in the other direction? I think uh, overall uh, it looks stable in, that, in the following sense. I think the alliance is pretty confident in our nuclear posture in Europe, which rests on dual capable aircraft, the F-35, having the capability to deliver gravity bombs, B-6112. And officially, uh, I, was, I was at the NATO Defense College giving a lecture on conventional nuclear deterrence a few weeks ago. And officially, I think the Alliance is satisfied. Part of this uh, satisfaction, though, I think rests on this, this, there's a bit of a sleeping beauty effect that there's a war in Ukraine, but most of the alliance has been thinking about stability operations and peacekeeping and counterterrorism. Uh, and conventional war is something they're facing. Nuclear risks are something they're concerned about, but it's, it's slowly dawning on them that they're, they're sliding back to the future. And so if you ask people in the alliance who think about nuclear posture, um, Unofficially, I think there are some concerns, like the Russians have a lot more non-strategic nuclear options available to them. Um, there's concern that the F-35 can't penetrate Russian air defenses. Uh, we've learned lots of things about Russian capabilities uh, in the war in Ukraine, and they're not good. But uh, Russian air defenses are still good because the Ukrainians are using them against the Russians. So... There is some concern that NATO's nuclear posture is insufficient. Uh, the new nuclear posture review from the Biden administration canceled the uh, submarine launch cruise missile that would be nuclear. Uh, the former commander of STRATCOM and uh, the former SACIR of, of Europe both wanted that missile. And to me, that is a sign that they're not confident about uh, NATO's current posture. Uh, but as long as the United States doesn't get involved in a conventional war with Russia, uh, that's probably sufficient for now. But there are, there are concerns about the future. I, I want to ask you about the nuclear revolution. I read a piece of yours in War on the Rocks. It was a book review of uh, Brendan Green's book. Um, the revolution that failed. We had him on the podcast uh, a while back. Uh, listeners can can refer back to that. Um, first, just talk a little bit about what the nuclear revolution is, and then tell us what you think its shortcomings are. I'm a big fan of uh, Brendan's work. It's uh, that that is a terrific book. Uh, 
one of two recent takedowns of, of the nuclear revolution. And it's a theory that we all were fed in graduate school, especially as someone like me was a student of Charlie Glazer, uh, different Glazer. Um, so the nuclear revolution argues that because of three things uh, that are inherent to nuclear weapon, their unique destructive power, the capacity to deliver them quickly uh, in half an hour, as well as the ability to bypass your country's military to impose these huge costs quickly has changed not just warfare, but international politics. And so you should see three kinds of behaviors, no great power war, no crises, and no arms races if countries live in mutual vulnerability. And the most extreme form of mutual vulnerability, of course, is MAD, the condition of mutually assured destruction. And if you evaluate the nuclear revolution, it's not perfect. Uh, it's batting one for three, which gets you into the Hall of Fame, right? There's been no great power war, but there have been crises. And there have been, uh, uh, there was a wicked Cold War arms race, and it looks like we're about to get into another one with the Chinese and the Russians. So there are limitations uh, to the nuclear revolution. For me, a big limitation is, uh, you know, Brendan's book is really good because he shows how the U.S. policymakers just did not find any comfort in MAD. Uh, our allies don't like it either. If you tell them, uh, my strategy to protect you is to pull the temple down on us and the Russians, that's not very credible. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to break out of MAD. Uh, for me, the interesting puzzle is when countries have nuclear weapons, they're, I think they come to realize quickly that they're very good at deterring nuclear attacks against their homeland. But when you use them for other things, for other forms of deterrence, then you encounter a credibility problem because you live in mutual vulnerability. So first use, first threats or threats of nuclear first use um, are not credible. Uh, I think even Pakistan finds it hard to credibly make nuclear threats of first use against India. So it's not uniquely about allies and extended deterrence, but you know, years ago, um, a scholar who worked at Cato, Earl Ravenall, wrote about the relationship between uh, the NATO alliance and counterforce and the need to make credible nuclear threats. And so essentially his argument, and I think he's right, is that nuclear deterrence beyond the homeland, when it's extended nuclear deterrence works because uh, you adopt dangerous strategies. It reflects, it's more about shelling than it is about Herman Kahn. It's nuclear deterrence is a competition and risk-taking. and uh, All these elaborate nuclear strategies and all these elaborate nuclear weapons are ways to demonstrate that you're willing to run the risk. And what's interesting is if you look at the Cold War, you have policymakers, from whether they're elephants or donkeys, making the following observation. Uh, we are going to try to fight and win a nuclear war, but we don't think we can control it. <laughs> and those things are contradictory, but I think they're revelatory because they show the true nature of extended deterrence and extending deterrence with nuclear weapons works because it's dangerous. And if a war starts, I'm pessimistic about our ability to control escalation. And that's where it gets its deterrent value. You know, don't cross this line. Otherwise, 
bad things will happen. And, and that is not the logic of American nuclear strategy. American nuclear strategy, again, based on flexible response, which has essentially been our strategy since the 60s to the present. Flexible response is premised on the idea that the U.S. can fight and win a limited nuclear war and keep it limited. And that last part, keeping it limited, is where I am highly pessimistic. Uh, but of course, I can point you to people who would disagree with me, but they're just two different ways of thinking about the problem. And I, sh I share Ravenall's concerns about extending nuclear deterrence and the risk we've run to do it. So I want to maybe ask you about um, limiting nuclear war in, in a second, but um, you and, and Brendan both point out that policymakers during the Cold War did in fact belabor the deterrence value of nukes and they, they went back and forth on it and there was, there was doubt that mutually assured destruction was operative and they felt the need to do more and compete, um, specifically build up arms and particularly nuclear arms. Um, and the the way that nuclear revolutionists, so to speak, uh, explain this is kind of like, oh, this is another irrational uh, aspect of policymakers. Um, and you and, and Brendan and others suggest that, no, the fact that policymakers were wondering about this is itself evidence that undermines the nuclear revolution. I want to see if you could just drill down on that because it's not actually totally clear to me, right? Policy make makers don't necessarily see international dynamics accurately. Um, so like if, if there's a security dilemma between state A and state B, and you go and interview the policymakers of each country, they're not going to describe the security dilemma. Uh, they're going to describe some narrower set of, uh, of uh, parameters. And so why wouldn't that also be the case with MAD? Why, why do you assume that for MAD to be an operation, there could never have been a kind of quiet dithering and uncertainty on the part of policymakers? For, for me, and I think people like Brendan and, and uh, one of his co-authors, Austin Long, we, we disagree about how much damage the U.S. could have limited in the Cold War. Uh, I think they have a more optimistic view of our ability to limit damage. And as I tell them, and uh, whenever we're around that together, that we probably could have limited damage, but <laughs> you're probably still talking about hundreds of millions of people dying. So that's, that's one point of disagreement. But I think where we would agree is that we want theories to explain how policymakers behave, not how they should behave. And this is a problem you see with, you know, defensive realism in general, in a nuclear revolution in particular, where the, the scholarly argument says policymakers should have known that you were in mad and arms racing doesn't work. And so to explain arms racing, we have to come up with another theory. Uh, you know, it's the military industrial complex, or uh, they had some other domestic pathology. And I think and this is where I agree with Brendan and others, that there are good strategic reasons to race in MAD because you're essentially trying to overcome a problem, and that is the stability-instability paradox. Okay, if we're in MAD, then you have so much nuclear stability. No one wants to pull the nuclear trigger first. 
that's bad for NATO Europe because the Red Army can blitzkrieg into West Germany safely because NATO won't pull the nuclear trigger. So there's just a lot of stability. The way Jervis deals with this in, the, in, in his book, uh, well, in both books, but the uh, theory of the nuclear revolution in particular, he says, the costs of war are so high that no one's going to attempt that. So he kind of wishes away the stability and stability paradox. Um, I think the way that uh, Brendan and others think uh, policymakers dealt with this is let's break out a mad. And, 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 and Long and Green think that we probably did break out a mad. Uh, I think the way policymakers dealt with this problem was we have to find ways to introduce instability. Because if there's too much nuclear stability, then our nuclear threats don't look credible. And for me, the way they did this was with non-strategic nuclear weapons, uh, with you know battlefield weapons, intermediate-range nuclear weapons, nuclear sharing, nuclear landmines, the whole smorgasbord of nuclear stuff. And it was a way to say, okay, we may live in mad, but we're introducing lots of risk. And so if a conventional war starts, we're creating pathways to nuclear instability. And uh, by the way, this is why <laughs> this is why uh, I'm an advocate of a grand strategy of restraint, because when you have to pursue extended deterrence, extended nuclear deterrence, and you have to make threats of nuclear first use to protect your ally, those are dangerous. If deterrence fails, I'm really worried. You know, that's that's uh, interesting. It makes me want to, because I just read a piece in The Atlantic uh, by Anne Applebaum. Yeah. Uh, in which, uh, actually, let me quote it because it's directly relevant to the point that you just made. Um, she says, given the growing popularity of the word restraint, we must consider how that concept might only, might not only prolong the war, but lead to a nuclear catastrophe? What if calls for peace actually reinforce Putin's deep belief that the West is weak and degenerate? So she's suggesting that restraint, um, particularly with respect to um, nuclear first use and defensive allies, might encourage uh, Russia to do something reckless. You, you seem to suggest the exact opposite a moment ago. Can you reconcile yeah. these things? I think that uh, she uh, reflects uh, a conventional wisdom in Washington about Putin, that he's hell-bent on aggression. This is 1938 all over again. And uh, these people uh, contradict themselves all the time, saying um, that if we don't stop him in Ukraine, then he's going to march to Berlin and burn down the Reichstag again. And... Uh, at the same time, they think that uh, our aid is what is saving Ukraine. So, you know, which one is it? Is, is Putin 10 feet tall or four feet tall? And I subscribe to what's happening on the balance on the battlefield, which is the Russians are not that powerful. They have trouble projecting <laughs> power into Western Ukraine. So uh, this weakness breeds aggression in Munich argument, I think, is not helpful. But this is their favorite analogy, right? I think I heard Will Ruger once say that, and I think he's right, that policymakers are fixated on two dates, 1991, where we're the unipolar power, and 1938, where we're worried about appeasement in Munich. Uh, I think what the way I look at it is we should ask, what are our core interests? And uh, the simple fact that Ukraine was not in NATO tells me that Russia cares about it more than we do. 
So it's not a high priority. We didn't want to run nuclear risk for it in 2021. Why would we do it in 2022? And so I think you have to focus on our interests, and then you have to ask, what are the risks? And there is a non-zero risk of nuclear war. And to what end? Well, he doesn't have the Wehrmacht at his disposal. He doesn't have the Red Army at his disposal. And it was just not, it's just not a core interest. I find these kind of arguments a little bit exasperating. Uh, I think they actually are so myopic, they ignore what American interests are. Um. One of the things I can never quite nail down in my reading of the literature here is, uh, you know, if you if you imagine kind of a scale or a gauge, exactly where the needle lands. If uh, mutually assured destruction is on one side and the delicate balance of terror is on the other, um, right? So we have a diverse system of states on this planet. Some of them possess nukes. Uh, they have different procedures for the use of those nukes, but in order for deterrence to really hold, they're they're all pretty much incentivized to centralize this authority in the head of state. And so, yes, there's mutually assured destruction and a lot of deterrence, but also humans can be super erratic, unpredictable, irrational psychos. And there is indeed the possibility, perhaps, it can be called a, a delicate one, that decision makers don't resist. Uh, always, uh, the many opportunities they have to escalate. But that that seems to describe it in a way that fits both the de delicate balance theory and the mad theory. So where how do you sort of where do you see the needle landing between these two views of it? I don't want to be Clintonian and triangulate and be in the middle here, but I I think it, it's it's a little bit of both. I mean, this is why I describe the nuclear revolution as imperfect. Uh, there hasn't been great power war. Uh, those theorists are right. A nuclear war, even a limited nuclear exchange, is going to be really painful. And they have focused the mind on what we should care about in a war, which is our interests, the politics, rather than the technology and the tactics, techniques, and procedures. So I think that's what they got right. But what they got wrong is uh, the confidence that policymakers, and especially those extending deterrence to allies, that that is sufficient. It's sufficient and that you can make credible threats of nuclear first use under those conditions. And uh, I think it's, if someone can, if you live in mutual vulnerability, then threats of using nuclear weapons first have a, cre have a credibility problem built in. And, and the nuclear revolution types try to wish that away by pointing to the cost of nuclear war, but um, human beings don't find that comforting. And so they look for strategies. And I think where policymakers ended up in the Cold War is uh, they couldn't find the technological solution to break out of MAD. They probably thought, well, we could limit lots of damage. But what they settled for was you know, kind of a shelling-esque competition and risk-taking, knowing that we're going to pursue these counterforce strategies in a way that will that the nuclear revolution people told us were useless, but we're doing it because we have to create the risk that there isn't too much stability in the system. And you end up in a place where nuclear deterrence works because it's dangerous. But for many of us, that's that's a reason maybe to consider not extending nuclear deterrence, you know. So if, if you buy my characterization, then 
you're probably more comfortable with a nuclear-armed Germany or a nuclear-armed Japan because uh, you're reducing the extended deterrence problem. Uh, in that Chicago Tribune piece, you write, quote, although it is in U.S. interest to protect Ukraine's sovereignty, the greater American interest is in preventing a wider and longer war. Now is the time for the U.S. to start thinking about creating off-ramps to terminate the war and balance these interests. And this might require Washington to limit Kiev's war aims. Can you just elaborate on that? Sure. I, I think one of the tragedies of this war is that uh, we told Ukraine that they had the right to be in NATO, but we had no intention of putting them in NATO. And um, there are lots of reasons Russia invaded Ukraine, but to prevent a hostile military alliance to extend further to its border uh, is one of those motives for the war. Uh, it's like I asked my students, if you're Vladimir Putin and you didn't want Ukraine to be in NATO, what strategy would you pursue? And it probably would be a coercive one. It may have not been the ham-fisted, poorly planned war that he attempted. But, you know, if China or Russia wanted a military alliance with Mexico or Ch or Mexico or Canada, uh, we would we would not tolerate that. We would use force to stop it. So, uh, our interest, of course, is we don't want to see other countries invaded. But uh, this war has been costly to Ukraine. It's been costly to us. Uh, it's been costly in terms of lives, in terms of munitions expended. Uh, it's done a number on the world economy. It's destabilizing Western Europe. Uh, Western European leaders are worried that the war will continue. It's going to be a cold winter in Europe. Um, and then you add the non-zero risk of nuclear war. This all points in the direction of uh, it's time to settle. And it could be that the battlefield uh, is the final battlefield is taking shape. The final settlement is taking shape, where Russian forces will be in the eastern regions, and Ukraine will struggle to project power, especially in winter, uh, east of the Dnieper River. So uh, perhaps that is a natural settlement. Now, uh, I, my inbox was flooded with people saying, "Well, you can't credibly commit to any kind of treaty with Russia, and the Ukrainians can't credibly commit to stop fighting." Yes, I recognize this thing called international politics has commitment problems, but uh, we've got to take the first step to do something. It seems like the Ukrainians definitely are not wanting to negotiate right now. Um, it sort of seems like the Russians are not interested either, but they just might need more of an opportunity presented by someone like the United States. And you think that essentially ceding the annexed territories to Russia and then perhaps agreeing to no NATO membership for the rest of Ukraine is like a, a suitable starting point for terms of negotiation? I think that uh, if you're in the United States and you are looking for an off-ramp, that's an obvious one. And it will require us to uh, put pressure on Ukraine, who is uh, now our patron, and we can do that because we control the military money spigot. And if we turn it off, then there are no advances. And I, that's pressure we can use. And reading between the lines of all these leaked complaints that the Biden administration has about Zelensky and reading about the back-channel dialogue, that sounds like that off-ramp is being set up, which I hope. 
you and me both. Uh, Jason <laughs> Castillo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. 